Welcome to Chick Chat, the Baby Chick Podcast. I'm Nina Spears, the Baby Chick, your host, and today we are so excited to have development expert Dr. Catherine here to chat with us. Dr. Catherine is a pediatrician of over 30 years, a trained midwife, a mother of four, and a two-time author. She has devoted her life to helping parents raise happy, healthy, and successful children. We are so inspired by her and her work. Today, we'll be chatting about some tools we as parents can use to help raising a toddler as well as the best tips and tricks to navigate toddler behavior and become the parent every kid wants. We are so excited to dive in, so let's welcome Dr. Catherine to learn more. Hello, and welcome to Chick Chat, the Baby Chick Podcast. I'm Nina Spears, the Baby Chick, your host, and I cannot believe it. Today, we have Hensi Goer joining us on our show. As a birth doula who has served hundreds of families over a decade, I am very familiar and a huge fan of her work. Hensi is the author of three books, Optimal Care in Childbirth, The Case for a Physiological Approach, co-authored by Amy Romano, a certified nurse midwife, The Thinking Woman's Guide to a Better Birth, and Obstetric Myths versus Research Realities. In addition, Hensi has written numerous blog posts and articles, given lectures all around the world, and has received multiple awards for her work. Hensi's passion and life's work provides pregnant women what they need to make decisions about their care. Complete and accurate information presented neutrally on the pros and cons of all of their options. In her efforts, Hensi wants to be a resource, not a guide, and instead of lead, she wants to have your back. Today, Hensi is chatting with us about optimal birth care. In place of offering instruction in what constitutes optimal care and how to obtain it, she wants to help empower you to take charge of your birth. Her goal is to help you figure out what is right for you and how to get it. So let's welcome Hensi to learn more. Hi, Hensi. We are so happy to have you on our podcast, Chick Chat. Thank you for being here. It is my pleasure, and I'm just really excited to have the opportunity to talk with you. I am so, so excited because as a birth doula for over a decade, I am very familiar with your work and love everything that you've done. So I'm excited for our listeners to get to know you and learn so much valuable tips, which I know you will share. But in the beginning of every episode, we'd like to start off each episode getting to know our guest a bit better, and we'd love to learn a little more about you and your experience. So Hensi, can you tell us about you and your background and how you came to specialize in pregnancy and childbirth? Well, it really goes back to my own experience of my first two births. And both of them were uneventful vaginal births from the medical point of view, but I came out of them feeling profoundly different. So um, get into the Wayback Machine and go back to 1974 when my son was born. And I felt like I didn't have any control over what was happening to me. I didn't feel like I needed pain medication, but I was talked into it and it didn't work well for me. And I got to the pushing phase of labor and I was flat on my back and I, and I wasn't getting anywhere. And I said, Can I just, if I could just get up, I, you know, a little more, nobody paid any attention to me. And then after a while, they talked me into having a saddle block, which was sort of a pre-epidural thing, which was the dumbest anesthesia going because all it did was numb you out and stop your contractions, but I was already close to giving birth. And then they took me into the delivery room and cut a large episiotomy for the forceps delivery. 
I instinctively reached for my son at the birth, was restrained by the cuffs on the delivery table, and they had a new thing there. You could breastfeed your baby on the delivery table. That was brand new in 1974. And they kind of plopped him on my chest and all stood around me. And of course, I, I didn't know what to do. And after a few minutes, they took him away for 12 hours, mandatory observation. He was a healthy baby in the nursery, which in my case, since he was born around noon, ended in the middle of the night. So they didn't bring him to me in the next morning. And by the time they brought him to me, I was hurting. I was exhausted. The best I could work up for him was I thought he was cute. And that's kind of where we stayed. I had a profound postpartum depression. I think back in 1974, that, that wasn't even sort of in the currency. I took care of him as a matter of duty. I didn't feel that first rush of love for him until he was five months old. And I remember the moment. So move forward. I'm pregnant with my second child. We're moving to California. And I started reading and discovered that all of the things that had happened to me had really not been necessary in my case. And that they had really done me a lot of damage. And so I started looking for something different. And I found, actually, what I was looking for was a home birth in the hospital, which I didn't realize you could actually have a home birth at home. But I found a very progressive obstetrician who said, yeah, we've got this new thing at Stanford. You don't have to go to the delivery room for the birth. And I said, how often do you do episiotomies? Because I'd had, I'd had a lot of trouble recovering from the one that I had. And uh, he said, I don't really remember the last time I did one. And then I said, and they won't take my baby away from me, will they? Because that one I was really clear on. He said, no, you know, we don't, we don't do that. Certainly not. And I got into labor and uh, it was back labor. And I got to the point where I was feeling like I couldn't go on. I said, I don't think I can do this. And instead of saying, great, we'll get you some medication. The people around me said, yes, you can. You're doing great. And I got to pushing and I, not everybody has back uh, labor with a posterior baby, but I did. And they got me up on my hands and knees and the doctor did something called manual rotation, which is where you reach your hand in and you, as the mother pushes, you kind of help the baby rotate. And once they did that, they, I turned over and in a couple of tractions, she was born, despite the fact she weighed a pound and a half more than her brother. And the head emerged and the doctor said to me, you want your baby? Pull the baby up. And I reached down and put my hands around my baby and pulled her up onto my chest, whereupon she pushed herself up on her arms and looked me in the face. <laughs> and she was not out of my arms or my husband's arms for the first two hours after her birth, except for just a very brief physical exam. I came out of that birth totally in love with her. And feeling on top of the world, I was taking my shower a couple of days later, and I was loving my body. And you know, women never love their bodies. You know, their boobs are too small or their tush is too, whatever it is. And I loved my body because it had done this amazing thing, and it changed how I thought of myself forever. So the next thing was, I need to tell people about this. And over, I got involved with a freestanding, there was a group of women in our community that were trying to start a freestanding birth center and a resource center, which they did. I got involved with them. I had, and, and then I trained to be a Lamaze teacher because I thought that's where I will be able to meet women 
and couples and let them know how important it is, the decisions they make in their birth. And as I got into teaching, I was finding out that, because remember, I was teaching Lamaze classes, not some of the more like Bradley. And so I was getting the women who were really mainstream. And what I realized is what they were hearing from their doctors about what was necessary was not. Now, I had a biology degree and I was, and I, and I liked to write. So I started reading the literature, which really isn't that difficult. You know, you just need to have some critical thinking and the vocabulary and, and I got more and more into writing. And I also became a doula. And, and eventually, God bless all the doulas that are out there. I had to give it up um, eventually because what I realized was I was aware of the gap between how that mother ought to be treated and how she was being treated. But she was okay with it. And that's not a good position to, to be in as a doula where I was the one with the problem. Same thing happened in my Lamaze classes. I wanted to really bring to people the importance of making informed decisions. And that really wasn't what my students were looking for. And then I realized that I had gotten into this writing more and more. And that was, and, and what I kind of finally got to was, you know, there's a lot of great educators and there's a lot of great doulas out there. And I had something that I could do that was a little more specialized. There's still not that many people out there who do what I did. There was Penny Simkin at the time. And then eventually now there's evidence-based birth. I'm not aware of a lot of people who are writing about the research, but it became my passion to be, I don't care what decision a woman, a person makes. What I care about is they make it based on complete, balanced, information about the pros and cons of all of their options. And so that's what I've been trying to bring for getting on for 40 years now. That's amazing. Well, I will say as someone who is a birth worker, I just love the work that you do and oh, thank completely, you. <laughs> completely agree with what you say. And that's been my philosophy for so long is that it's to me, it's not my birth. It is not my body, but I am here to help you make the decisions that are best for you as long as they are informed and educated uh, decisions. And so that's why I've, I've loved your work and directing people to it um, so that they can be more informed and more empowered for their childbirth experience. So thank you for all of that. And thank you for sharing <laughs> your story. That is so cool. And for, for our listeners, those who are unfamiliar, can you shed some light? on what constitutes optimal care in childbirth? And why is that important for women to understand this concept? Aha. Uh -huh. So essentially, kind of out in the general public, there are two models. There's the sort of what I, what, what I'm sure you've used the term yourself, the medical model, which is sort of the childbirth is a disease and labor and birth are the crisis of the disease. And that model is an illness model which in which it is like something can go wrong any minute. And the, the obstetrician is supposed to do is to prevent that happening. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, you have what has been deemed natural childbirth, which says that really the only way to go is not to interfere with nature. And there's an obvious problem with both of those because sometimes you need intervention and, and sometimes, but in general for a healthy woman, you don't. And I wish I could remember 
I can't remember who said this, but it was like, you can't improve a natural process that is working as it should. You can only disrupt it. Mm-hmm. So some years ago, the American College of Nurse Midwives came up with optimal childbirth. And sort of a working definition of that is to look at that what is optimal is the least use of medical intervention that will produce the best outcomes given the individual case. And the strength of that is it looks at the whole picture. So from in the medical model point of view, it doesn't really matter what happens during the process. If what comes out of it is a healthy mother and a healthy baby, what happened in between doesn't matter. Whether she had a cesarean, whether she had a bunch of interventions she didn't really need, how she's feeling about all of that emotionally. Natural childbirth, again, has the pitfall of, of failure in it, mm-hmm. you know, like if, or which is also equally devastating. But optimal childbirth says we look at the process too, and that matters. And I just found that to be such a sweet spot for where I could position. Because the other thing that optimal care does for women who do have, and people capable of pregnancy who do have complex pregnancies or complications in labor, is that it makes the assumption that we want to do the least possible to get things back on track and maintain whatever we can in supporting you in this experience which I think is crucial to how people come out of this process. I love that definition that you just gave me. It really is that beautiful sweet spot because yes, one is, they're both the natural versus the medical, they're the far sides of the spectrum, but having that like nice middle spot. And as a woman who has given birth twice, I felt like, oh, I need to to really avoid as much of that medical system because I have been to so many births that I I decided to have two home births so that I could try to be as far away and not experience those things. But I love that you are giving, shedding light and giving hope to women that, you know, because I know I, well, one, not everyone can have a home birth. It's, you know, there, there are high risks, uh, uh, you know, high risk women and complications that happen. But to give, to give people hope that you can actually still have a beautiful, optimal birth in between. So I just, I love that. I love that uh, definition. I think it's especially important for people who wanted a physiologic birth because it enables them to make the appropriate shifts. So for example, I'm sure you've had this experience. You've been a doula to a woman who's been laboring. She's trying to avoid an epidural. Mm -hmm. She's done everything she can. She's exhausted. She is losing her ability to cope and she opts for an epidural in the optimal care model, and actually I, I was at a birth where this literally happened where the mom just wasn't making progress. And while under, under most commonly epidurals, slow labor, sometimes I think when you're at that state, there's a profound relaxation that can happen. This mom opted for an epidural and got some sleep and, and, and woke up fully dilated. Yes. Because- That was the least, it saved her. Like, what if she had pushed through and said, I am never going to have, and she might've ended up with an avoidable cesarean, 
Mm-hmm. Whereas the optimal care model put her in a position to make that that shift. The other thing too is sometimes I think the the thing that can happen in the medical model is when someone does develop com- a problem that needs to be dealt with, it's like you then lose everything. It's like it's either black and white. Either you turn your unresisting body over to the system or you're kind of over there doing whatever you want. But the optimal care model says we still want to make sure that yes, you have your loved one and your doula in there with you in the in the operating room. And we want to make sure that we keep your baby with you and don't take the baby off to the nursery if the nursery doesn't need special care. So that there's that mindfulness of preserving whatever can be preserved in complex or difficult situations. And I love how you brought this up because I think that a lot of people just assume, well, that's just how it goes. And that leads me to my next question, Hensi. What common misconceptions do you find women have about their choices when it comes to childbirth? I think the most common misconception is that they don't have choices. The system is designed to set you up to think that way. Mm-hmm. So, for example, just take this very innocent term, informed consent. Yes. Informed consent is a very different thing from informed decision making. And what's more, so now the latest, well, not so recent, but reasonably recent buzzword is shared decision making in the medical world. Now, think about what that means, because what it comes down to is shared decision making is we're going to share the decision as long as you agree with what I want to do. And can you give our listeners the definition of what informed decision-making and informed consent are so they understand that as well? Well, informed consent is supposed to be like, we've given you the pros and cons of all your options. And actually, it's a perfectly good concern, a term, and if you understand that, you can also give informed refusal. But even presenting it as informed consent implies that you can't, okay? Right. Now, I will say that in their minds, in the standard medical system, their minds are they are there to obtain consent from you. And that can work one of two ways. If they're in the typical system, if you push against it, they'll start to bring pressure on you. And I mean, you can read that all over the place. You know, it's like, sure, we don't have to use the electronic fetal monitor if you don't care that we don't know what's going on with your baby. So there can be a lot of pressure to consent. And and even if they're friendly about it, it's more like, oh, she's not consenting. I must not have explained myself well enough. Let me try again. So there is no, I mean, although you are legally and ethically required to be able to give informed refusal, unfortunately, in way too many environments, it doesn't play out that way. I mean, even to, and I think this is more common with people of color, with low-income women, with people for whom English is not their first language, is to actually bring in threats. I mean, that's pretty well documented. So that cycles me around to If we talk about informed decision-making, that means you need to have, you need to understand, first of all, what's being proposed. Well, we just want to do an amniotomy. What's that? What is that? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You need to know the pros and cons of doing one. And what happens, and again, there's research on this, is that if anything that they propose to do, you are far more likely to get 
the advantages of it and hear nothing or little about the possible drawbacks. You need to know the pros and cons of all your options, which means like, how about if we just wait a bit? (laughs) And you need to be able to give meaningful refusal. And for people, I think that people just feel that you're right, that pressure, because most of the births that I do go to are hospital births. And I think that that's what my calling is, because I want to give those particular Mm -hmm. women the best birth experiences possible and support them and let them know what truly is available. And I love how you just said that sometimes I'll say, you know what, if you do not feel comfortable with saying no, you can say not right now. If it's not a true, an emergency, I'll tell my my clients, if it's an emergency, literally they will start unplugging things and rushing you to the OR. That is an emergency. But if they're talking about something and giving that time, then it's not a true emergency right in this moment. And you have time to make a decision and think about it. Do you ever use the BRAIN acronym? Oh, yes, absolutely. Benefits, risks. Yes, alternatives, your intuition and saying no or not right now. I love that brain acronym. I would add to that because it's so hard, just as, you know, a suggestion for your, mm-hmm. for your clients. I would add to that not now because it's hard for them to hear you say no is to then add with a discussion about under what circumstances would we want to revisit my decision So that there, and I can actually tell you a a story about that, but I think that opens the door for them to come back and say things have changed. And it also Mm -hmm. plants the idea that you're not one of those, I just say no automatically. Yeah. And I also want listeners to understand that I'm not trying to fight the system. I'm not trying to say it's us versus them. It needs to be a team But I always want my clients to feel that they are the ones that are taking charge, like your book, Take Charge of Your Birth. (laughs) And that's something that's really important when we have this discussion is that we're not trying to necessarily fight the system. It's just using your voice. Well, there are two things. And one is that with any large institutional system embedded in the structure is that it meets the needs of the people who are working in the system, not necessarily the needs of the people who are served by the system. So this isn't, yeah, sure, there's bad apples like there are in any you know field, but most of the people in the system are good people, but they're in a structure in which the drivers of that structure are, whether they're economic, whether they're liability, whether they're efficiency in terms of of care, whether they're about what's familiar, those drivers all work against having a system that is welcome and supportive of individual decision-making. I love that. I love that. And and see, I just really appreciate that everything you write about and talk about is data-driven. Yet, I feel like it's just not widely talked about enough. And why do you think that is? Well, actually, I would describe the problem a little differently. When I first got involved years ago, the the data said one thing, and what was opposed to it was opinion. As the years have gone by, what you've started to get <laughs> so the catchphrase is evidence-based decision-making. But as we moved into it, there was a really lovely 
obstetrician. May his memory be a blessing. Who I again, one thing that happens when you get older, you blank on names. Oh, Phil Hall, who said, what we really have going on now is decision-based evidence making. Ah. As the years have, have gone by, you've had more and more studies, which we now have this huge, this is, it's like to say you, to practice um, evidence-based care is very tricky because what I've seen is there are so many studies out there that are very well done studies, but the results you get depends on what questions you ask. And they also depend on the fact that you're working inside a system. So what we have is a lot of evidence out there which is now being cited, it's like, yeah, we've got the randomized controlled trials. And it's made things a lot more difficult because it's one thing to say, well, there's opinion. And then there's what the research says. Because what we've got now is, this is what the research says. I can give you a, a quick example of that. I'm sure you're aware that there's this huge movement out there to induce everybody at 39 weeks. Yes. It's based on a very well done, very large randomized controlled trial. So, you know, that's the word from on high, marching down the mountain with the two tablets. However, if you look at that study I've written about it in my blog posts, it was in uh, first time mothers. And the reason that it is being touted is if you and the women who are assigned to be induced at 39 weeks, the cesarean rate was 19%. And in women who had what they called expectant management, but just meant that, well, maybe labor would start and maybe we'd induce you a little further down the line, had a 21%, no, excuse me, 23% cesarean rate. So on that basis, it's like, wow, we need to be inducing everybody at 39 weeks. Mm. So if you look at, now these were ultra low risk women, they would have been eligible for an out of hospital birth. If you look at study after study, done in freestanding birth centers or home births is a cesarean rate in first-time healthy mothers. The range is like from 8% to 13%. So clearly in that population, something like 10% of women end up being um, induced. Okay. So obviously what you have is an echo chamber, you know, if the moment you step outside of that little bubble, it's very clear that that study is crap. It's, so it's a very well-conducted study, but they're asking the wrong questions of the wrong people. I'm so glad that you brought up that study because that's something that a lot of people will talk about. Oh, well, now my doctor's recommending that I get induced at 39 weeks. And I'm like, oh no, <laughs> where do we begin? <laughs> and who benefits? This is a perfect example of decision-based evidence-making. Being mm -hmm. able to schedule labors is a huge benefit to both the hospital in terms of staffing and also to obstetricians in terms of convenience. And then they try to spin that as, but it's a convenience to you as well, because you will ensure having your doctor there um, rather than maybe a different doctor who's on call. You can then make sure that you have your loved ones ready at home, sharing all these other benefits of having something a bit more scheduled, which again, for people who medically need inductions, that is absolutely necessary and wonderful. But for people who are low risk and the other complications and the risks that accompany that, I just am like, oh, but they are leaving out <laughs> so many other things. You know what the really scary part is? If you're seeing a conventional obstetrician with the more usual 32% cesarean rate, you are better off being induced at 39 weeks. 
Wow. Yeah. So think about right. that one. That's now, true. there are progressive, I mean, it doesn't mean like, oh, if I want the kind of birth I want, I have to get out of the hospital. No, but it does mean you need to find the right situation. And if that's not possible, at least you'll have your eyes opened. Right. To, to so how true. you might be able to work the system. Yes. And now I want to talk about your new book, Kensi. I am so excited about it. Take Charge of Your Birth series. Can you tell us more about it and what we can expect to learn? Huh. Okay. So it's so hard because it's been such a journey. All right. Let's see if I can, if I can do the standing on one leg version. So as I got into teaching, you know, so I sort of got out of Lamaze and working as a doula. And the first book I wrote back in 1995 was the book that I wanted to have on my bookshelf that had the research in it. And when I finished that book, I realized that I really wanted to write something for pregnant women themselves. And that was The Thinking Woman's Guide to a Better Birth. And when I finished that book, I thought, well, you know, the internet is where things are. And so I started a website called Childbirth U, in which I was streaming lectures on individual topics. And some years later, the marketing person I hired said, because it was not a success, said, you need to do a focus group on this <laughs> and find out what we found out. And I asked her specifically to ask this question of the people that we got in the focus group was, would this information be better in a book? And the answer we got back was yes, that it was great information. It was not accessible. And that's what led to the idea of doing a series of books where I was taking that individual information that was in those lectures and going with a book instead and covering my ideas to cover. It's a, it's a, it's a thin book. It, you know, it's all of 155 pages, including the references, was to really go deep and give women what they needed. The other thing that shifted in the process of moving to the series is my voice. I was working with my daughter who, well, actually, she's a professional actress and she makes her living as an audiobook narrator. And by the way, she's got the, she narrated the audiobook, which is wonderful. But she's also very entrepreneurial. And one of the things that she wanted to do was start a small press. So she's actually my publisher. And <clears throat> when she was in Los Angeles trying to make it as an actress, what she did was she ended up being a writing tutor. And she's very good at that too. So what she helped me do was find who I was. The fundamental problem with Childbirth You was its model of, I was standing up in front of the class and telling them what I knew and giving them the information. And what we realized is that's not who I wanted to be anymore. I guess you learn a thing or two as you get older. I certainly didn't want to be the girlfriend, which is, you know, like uh, Emily Oster's books, like, hey, girlfriend, I, you know, I've done this. And then I looked up stuff up and I can help you. I mean, not me. Who was I? And what I realized is, you know, I'm a grandmother. I'm a mother. I just wanted to sit down with people like my model was, I'm sitting at the kitchen table with you. We both have a cup of tea. I'm listening to you. I'm helping you figure out what's right for you. I want to be as, well, 
this is something I talk about in the first chapter of the book, it's not possible to be neutral because people have opinions. What you can be is transparent. And what I've done in the book to the best of my ability is tell you who, what I think, why I think it. I've been very careful to say in certain parts of the book, this is my opinion. I want to create a space in which I trust that you can figure out what's right for you. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be what I would do. And in some cases, <laughs> it really isn't what I would do as the, like somebody came up to me at a conference once said, thank you so much for your book. It enabled me to have a free birth at home. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> you know, because <laughs> not what I would do. <laughs> yeah. So for our listeners out there who don't know what a free home birth is, that's meaning you do not have a midwife or someone that is going to be medically responsible for your health and your baby's health during the laboring and childbirth process. So that can be, that is something that I do not recommend either. So I understand you. <laughs> However, there are risks connected with it. And, and I get that if you understand that there are risks connected with it and you still feel like, let's make up a story. I cannot birth in the hospital. I was so traumatized by my previous experience, you know, whatever it might be, that you are making a choice based on a full understanding of the pros and cons and you need to decide what's right for you. It's so true. It's so so true. that's one reason why in the book, when you get to the, you know, the takeaway, I mean, I do talk very frankly about all the drawbacks of epidurals. And when I get to the final section, it really comes down to, are you making an epidural plan A or plan B? If you're making it plan A, here's a whole list of ideas about how you can maximize the chance of having the epidural that you want, not having any problems with it, having just a lovely, uneventful vaginal birth with your epidural. Oh. Now, I, I'm curious, for our listeners who have read your, your previous work, how does this series differ from your previous work? The What, The Thinking Woman's Guide? Yes. Well, first of all, it's updated. <laughs> a lot's changed. That book was actually published in 1999. I have it on my bookshelf behind me. So yeah, I love it. <laughs> when I was sort of like searching for people who might be good people to approach, I saw it was on your top 10 list. And I was like, oh, I was so excited. I I love your work. That's, I mean it <laughs> when I say that. So it's updated. But again, I mean, I wrote that book in 1999. I wrote this book in 2022. Yeah, true. Okay, that that makes total sense. I I just was curious if there's anything that they're like, oh, this is what's different. I, I mean, even in that book, I was still in teacher mode rather than in, if I may, wise woman slash mentor or or facilitator role. Oh, well, I'm so excited and I can't wait to sink my teeth into it. So, and what inspired you to start this series now in 2022 and begin with labor pain specifically? Well, actually, I started with labor pain because I wanted to start with a hot button topic around which there was lots of controversy. I'm working on the second book, by the way, which is going to be about induction. Oh, another one, another hot topic. (laughs) Well, yeah, because I I really wanted to start with books, especially if I'm going to write a book on a single topic. Mm -hmm. It's got to be one with a lot of of interest behind it. And 
using Take Charge of Your Births, I really thought epitomized the path that I think for women to and, and people capable of pregnancy to be able to make um, the decisions they, they need to make about birth. And interestingly enough, here's one thing, is I'm not even saying that you need to do this all on your own. Mm-hmm. It is a perfectly reasonable decision to say, I chose my care provider. And by the way, that's the first thing to do is choose a care provider who's on the same page you are. But I chose my care provider. I'm just going to trust what they say and, and go along with what they think I should do. I think that's a perfectly reasonable decision. I want people to know it's a conscious one, though, not something that they didn't realize they could do otherwise. You're right. I love that. I'm so sorry if I interrupted you in that thought, Hensi. <laughs> I know I was sort of done. <laughs> okay, good. Okay, sorry. And like you've said, we know that, I, I think I saw this also on your on your website, we know that we can't control birth or really anything in life. In your opinion, why is it still important to take charge of our births, even though you even have said like we can't control really anything in life? It's a matter of agency. So what we know, and there's research about this too, is that there's this, here's another misconception that what makes for a positive birth experience is how well your pain is relieved. That's certainly the medical model view of it. Mm -hmm. In actuality, if you do the research, what makes for a positive experience is first of all, being treated kindly and respectfully. And the second thing is having agency of being a full participant in whatever decisions that get made and having the ultimate say. Pain relief only comes into it when your expectations aren't met. So if you expected to have an epidural when you wanted it, and sorry, the anesthesiologist is busy right now, now you're going to be dissatisfied. But pain relief is not what determines that. So by taking charge, I mean having agency. And the three steps are summed up in the subtitle to the book, Get the Data. That's what I wrote the book to do. Make a plan. That's what the last chapter does is is help people figure out what do they need to do to implement the choices that they make. And that will enable you to feel in charge. And it, it just, that is preventive care for, I mean, it's not completely preventive because for I think um, not only depression, but also trauma, childbirth-related trauma, because trauma comes out of feeling helpless in a situation in which you you feel you or your loved ones are in danger. I'm so glad that you said the word plan, because that is something else that I feel is a little controversial right now, because a lot of people will say what's the point of planning? Because it doesn't even go according to plan anyway. So my only plan was to get the baby out. And to me, I'm always like, yes, but if the the plan isn't about the plan, it's about the it's about the process of making the plan. It's yes. about becoming informed and knowing what those options are. So when it doesn't go to plan, you know what the other options are available to you and you know the right one, the next best right one for you. But I'm curious to you, how do you answer that? <laughs> you just said exactly what I said in that part of the book, which oh. is 
if you're going to, and this is also the medical system, that's why they hate birth plans, like, you know, because you don't know what's going to happen. And the thing is, it depends on how you define a plan. If you think of it as a shopping list or even a blueprint, but if you think of it as something like planning for a career or there are, are things that can get in your way, but knowing where you want to go enables you to be flexible, to know what your priorities are, to know what you can give on, to know if you can figure out another path, to know if you really can't have that thing that you wanted, that it's okay to grieve about it. One thing I say right at the top of that list is think in terms of having intentions, not goals. Mm-hmm. Because intention is about a path and a direction you want to go. A goal is something that you're supposed to achieve. Goals have failure attached to it. Intentions don't. I love that. I'm taking that. I'm stealing that, Hensi, from you. Actually, I think it's that's not beautiful. original for me. I was, I was <laughs> at a, I was at a uh, seminar, and 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 that it, that issue with somebody in the group said that, and I was like. Oh, you know, you have those yes. light bulb moments. It's like, ah, this is important. Yeah. And so you are welcome to it. <laughs> I love it. And that you're spreading all of this good intention everywhere. So this is, this is fantastic. And for, I guess I want to know now, like, if you could just share like one thing, like what is one thing you want our listeners to know about advocating for themselves during their childbirth planning? Well, actually, we just covered that, is I want them to know that having agency is key. Mm -hmm. Also, to trust that they know what is right for them. It might be to follow the crowd. It might not. However, if they do the work of planning and preparing and thinking about these things, they can figure it out. And to find the people who will support them in that. I love that. I think that that's always my number one first tip is like, oh my goodness, who you have as your support system, your medical team, whoever is there. That is the number one thing that I think really can determine the outcome of your birth. Of course, yes, educating yourself and all that, but they need to be on the same page as you and understand what you want. So I just, I love that. That is such fabulous information and tips. So, And I think all of the people who have you as a doula are very lucky oh, <laughs> that they, they found you. I got goosebumps, Hensi. Thank <laughs> you. I could cry. That makes me so happy. <laughs> Hensi, any final thoughts or advice for our listeners? No, I think... I think we've done a, a great job of covering just kind of, you know, where where my heart and passion are. I love it. I think we have too. I just wanted to make sure I left the floor open if you had just anything else to say, but this was just fantastic. And Hensi, where can our listeners find you? Well, first of all, if you're interested in the book, it's on Amazon. And the title of the book, it, well, you can, if you look up my name, you'll get to it, but it's um, Labor Pain colon, what's your best strategy, question mark. And it's available in paperback, ebook, and audiobook. Now, where can they find me? Well, there's always my website. Um, you can look at my blog posts, whatever. That is hensigoer.com, so that's easy. I'm on Facebook under Take Charge of Your Birth, and I'm also on Instagram on, under Take Charge of Your Birth. Fantastic. Oh, 
This was amazing, Hensi, and so incredibly informative. I just cannot thank you enough, again, for your time and for sharing your knowledge and your passion with all of us. I just thank you so much for giving me this opportunity, and I had a great time. Oh, (laughs) so did did I. (laughs) I did. I did, and I'm sure our listeners did too, and I'm sure that they're going to be taking home some nuggets of wisdom and just feeling more empowered for for their birthing process. So, And for our listeners out there, as she said, to learn more about Hensi and her work, you can visit her on her website at hensigoer.com or on Instagram and Facebook at Take Charge of Your Birth. Team will be posting today's episode on our Baby Chick Facebook page. So if you have any questions or comments about our discussion, please share them with us in the comment section. And as always, if you haven't already, please subscribe to Chick Chat, the Baby Chick podcast, wherever you listen to podcasts and leave us an honest review. Cheers to everyone taking charge of their birthing journey.